Product Management. Hello everyone, this is Vlad again and this is another, this is 18th episode of the Real World Product Management. Today we have two topics to discuss. One is uh, enterprise product management, evolution versus revolution. What does that mean? That means uh, I wanted to talk about, and uh, we just had a discussion in couple last couple of weeks about uh, what's the revolution, what's the evolution with some of my colleagues, the company I work for, and um, that's that was not product management discussion. It was a discussion between the product manager and other guys, the project managers, the delivery guys, and others. And it was uh, very interesting. I learned a lot of new things. And I wanted to sort of discuss, share uh, my thoughts, share what I've learned, and see if you guys agree or disagree, or maybe there's something else uh, you want to tell me about this uh, evolution versus revolution. Uh, in um, enterprise product management, product governance. I'm sorry, I should have said that from the start. We're not going to talk about the actual product management. We're going to talk about specifically product governance. How do you set up product management processes um, in evolutionary style versus revolutionary style and what works, what doesn't work? That's number one. Number two is prioritization. And again, uh, Part of it came from the discussions with colleagues. Part of it came from my personal realization that I keep reading about uh, prioritization techniques. I keep reading about things that other folks are doing. But for whatever reason, (laughs) I don't get to do um, a lot of those uh, interesting things. I end up doing something else. And once I start looking at it, I realized why. And that's something else I wanted to share and something else I wanted to discuss. And maybe hear your opinions. Um, if you disagree with me, great, perfect. That's why we're all here, right? Uh, if you remember, or if you don't listen to a few of the first episodes of this podcast, the reason why I started the podcast is uh, because I got fed up with uh, discussions where everyone agrees with everyone. And I was like, that's bullshit. That never happens. And, and I, I decided to start inviting people who don't think like I do. Uh, like, hey, uh, I know you're disagreeing with me here, here, and here. Let's discuss it. Tell me why you're, uh, why you're thinking, what, how you're thinking, and uh, it kind of became a thing. So, by all means, tell me, uh, tell me how you feel about this. Tell me what you think, and uh, let's move on. So, number one, enterprise product governance. Um, probably should stop calling this particular topic product management. Enterprise product governance uh, implies that you have, as you develop your product, product portfolio, product line, product, individual products, you want to establish certain processes with the rest of the organization to manage stakeholders, manage the existing processes, manage business as usual. Because here's the thing. When you use a new product manager or newly transitioned or newly hired, doesn't really matter. Um, as a product manager, you come into organization, to the division, to the unit, to the team. It, unless it's a brand new team, brand new product, brand new everything, in which case there's nothing, there's no transition. You just start the discovery and you keep moving the way you're supposed to. But in terms of the transformation, it usually happens when you doing a digital transformation, doing the uh, OCM, organization change management. You walk into the existing structure, you walk into the existing organization and you try to uh, persuade, you try to explain to people why it's important to do what you're saying. How are you gonna do it? What is the new process? What is the new structure? How are you gonna adapt? How are you gonna move from the old ways to new ways of working? And uh, and you have to have people buy into it because you're not walking into a brand new organization in this particular use case, right? You're walking into the existing organization. The existing organization, uh, hopefully it's it's still generating uh, revenue, still generating uh, requests, it's still generating some kind of work for the development team that you're going to be working with or teams that you're going to be working with. So 
immediate question when you start saying let's break things and uh you know build something new the immediate question that you're going to get is hey who's going to take care of the existing requests right um there there's a queue of existing requests probably some some of them are in pending or in review or waiting for a budget or something or in progress or in testing or pending i don't know security review pending whatever change management review pending production deployment you're going to have a pretty thick and busy pipeline so how do you walk into that and and change things and you can i I, i've heard a number of stories on product con or and others how a successful product team walks in breaks things apart uh rebuilds everything and delivers a product in record time and it's an amazing story it's absolutely mind-boggling story and it works all the time you can tell by the way the person was telling the story that he likes telling the story because it works and believe me i use this um i use this technique methodology right and and when i'm talking about my so my own achievements hey i took this on a shoestring budget and i built this prototype and i built this thing i went from idea to MVP in in a public uh, in production in under nine months, and it works. That's what makes it a good story. You have a premise, you have a you know a development, you have a challenge, and then a hero. Is there the other product team or me in my case? Hero overcomes the challenge and emerges victorious, and here's the clear benefit, and everybody's happy. It's the standard storytelling, right? <laughs> And it works, and that's that's why it works. But the thing is, ninety nine percent of the time, it's this is not the kind of a movie, if you know what I mean. This is not that kind of a movie. Ninety nine point nine percent of the time, it's the grind that wins the day. That one tenth of a percent that you hear about, it, it makes a good story. But the what you're not hearing about is the daily grind. It's the grind that. Um, we call an evolutionary approach. So revolution in terms of product management and product governance, the revolution is when you are able to walk in, you have that mandate from upper management or you are the inventor, CEO, whatever, and you have that ability, you have that power to come in, break things apart, tell everyone, okay, hold on, don't do anything. We're going to rebuild the process. We're going to do things and you can move on. Usually it works with the, it does not happen in the existing team and the existing organization. Usually it's say they're a new branch, a new BU, a new team is formed and they're able to start slow while the process is being worked on. And that's your kind of a revolutionary approach. Again, I've heard stories about the revolutionary approach in the enterprise with the existing teams. I've heard them. They exist. It's just not what works every time, all the time. It's that one-tenth of a percent. On the other side of this, this is this type of a movie, right? On the other side of this is the evolutionary approach. So what this means is you ramp up your new ways of working and you ramp down your old ways of working or what we call business as usual. And that helps you sort of realign slowly between the old work, the existing work, the existing pipeline that I mentioned before. And the new work, the work ingested in a new way or the new intake process or even maybe a new product because when when you're evolving an existing ecosystem of uh, i'm gonna say applications could be something some of them may become products may not but what we usually deal with in this use case is their suite of applications or there are certain things that are currently exist in the enterprise right and somebody has to keep the lights on somebody has to work with that and then we have uh reset the expectations we have looked at the um, new things we have looked at the new 
problem statements. Let, let's start there. We'll look at new problem statements and we want to understand, okay, so now that we have this thing, now that we have uh, these new this new list of problems, how are we going to approach that? Are any of the existing applications that are out there actually solve these problems? And frankly, if a company goes on, it goes through digital transformation, the answers are probably not much. Uh, you may end up having five different applications solving the same problem. Guess what? That by itself is indicative of, hey, if you have five applications solving the same problem, you're not solving the problem. You're just building applications. If then you have people, you, you have broken workflows where people use some additional tools or something like, for example, you have a CRM where you keep tabs on your clients, then you have something else where people end up using Excel. So they export their clients or their contacts from the CRM to Excel to do some work in Excel. And then they have to import that result of the work back into the CRM so they continue keep continue tracking that, uh, that thing that they were doing. Just a rough example, right? It doesn't have to be like that. So that requires digital transformation and now you look at this whole customer journey or or workflow and you want to ask yourself can we build this in the one tool so we keep track of things you know all the way we reduce number of errors increase customer or user satisfaction sorry not the customer user satisfaction uh, make things easier for everyone the answer is obviously yes and that's where you start and that's what and that's how you end up with a brand new product portfolio, or product line, or product family, whichever it ends up being, that sort of overlaps the, with the existing um, landscape, existing applications, existing things. And at the same time, it replaces them because now that you've looked at what the actual problem is, not the problem that each individual application is trying to solve, but what the actual problem is, what is the what is the what, right? What is the ultimate goal of all of this then you have different things and uh you need to transition to that but you still need to keep the lights on with the existing application and in most cases it's the same group of people that are going to be building a new one so that's how you get um, this overlap where you decrease the amount of business as usual of the existing work and you in, uh, you decrease the amount of the existing work and you increase uh, the amount of the new work, this building this new uh, product, family product, portfolio product, whatever, uh, to replace the existing suite of applications. Obviously, you have to plan. Obviously, you have to transition everyone who's using it. Um, not an easy feat. And in the enterprise, it has it requires a lot of orchestration with the enterprise architecture team, with the security team, change management, all nine yards. So revolution, uh, not sure if it's feasible. Again, if you're working in a siloed environment, and I deliberately I'm not I'm deliberately not saying in the small company. It could be a siloed team or several teams within the enterprise that were given this uh, startup powers. In that sense, it's kind of like a pod, right? Um, they can do the revolutionary way and it will work. And we know these stories. We've heard them on ProductCon. We've heard them. We read that read about them in the newsletters that we read on product management, all that jazz. They do exist. Absolutely. I've been a part of it. Believe me, I've been a part of that uh, revolutionary approach. It works like magic. The feeling you get after it is absolutely amazing. Like, oh my God, this is, I've never seen like anything like this before. But in most cases, it is still a daily grind. It's, it's a grind of how do we get to the next to the next milestone how do we get to the next point and it's not a revolution another interesting thing and again this is with the part where we encroach on ocm organization change management is when it, you as a product manager and I'm, I'm assuming my audience is not only product managers but you guys are out there um 
as a product manager, you are an agent of change. You came to change things and you consistently change things. You consistently change your own artifacts. Hell, I was talking about why PRDs are better, right? Because you consistently change things. You constantly update your roadmap. You change, you change your structure. You change your prioritization every now and then. You are an agent of change. You are the change. You, uh, what's the right way of saying it? You are why things keep changing all the time, right? Project versus product. Once the project charter is done, once you have the budget, the timeline, the scope, this is it. Things are nailed down to a wall. And um, in the product development, it's not like that. That's not that kind of not that kind of a movie. So you like change. You have to like change, right? If you're in the product management, if you don't. There probably should go do project management. Not everybody's like that. Delivery <laughs> delivery management hates change because that means they need to juggle the scope and they need to juggle resources. They need to understand what, what is the new thing you're doing. How does that affect you or affect your own release plans or affect your whatever else um, delivery the organization is responsible for? they not really happy about it. PMO hates change because they have a project plan and now you're changing things and now they have to communicate it up and down the chain and change their project plan. And guess what? <laughs> you're going to change them again and they're going to start hating you for that. It's It happens. I I know people who are like that. It happens. Uh, but and, and there they are project managers who love product, who love to work with product. They love these change things. Uh, the, the constant change of things, this kind of constant uh, flow of change, building new things. Oh, wait, we made a mistake. We didn't realize that, you know, this is not going to work like that and we need to uh, readjust. And there are people who don't. And in all of these established organizations, um, most of what I am seeing personally is that people don't like change. They want to, <laughs> they want you to come in, do your thing, but don't change anything, right? Don't break anything. And obviously, it doesn't work like that. So that's um, that's the that's the challenge, really. That's the challenge. And the challenge, the challenge of building a product becomes the challenge of changing people and processes and and transforming the organization. And um, what I found out about myself is I was not, when I walked into this situation the first time, I was not equipped with experience and knowledge of changing the people and changing the organization. I was fully prepared and had experience on building the product or changing the existing application suite, um, application landscape into the product portfolio. What I was not ready for was um, changing people, changing people's minds, winning people's, people's hearts and minds in, and, and transforming the organization. Even on that small level, at the scrum level, the teams that are working on this portfolio, people were terrified. Oh my God, we're not gonna do what we used to do. So are they firing us and hiring new people who know how to do this stuff? Are they gonna teach us how to do this? And are they gonna are they gonna be exams? And if we don't pass the exam, they fire. So your whole job security, your world is coming apart and you have to be very cautious around that, which is why I keep saying evolution works better. Revolution only works if it's a siloed environment. So you've all been gathered here today to experience this new revolutionary thing. You're all on board. You all have the experience. You have the the, the knack to do these things, and we're going to do this with you. And that 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 settles you down. That keeps you calm about your job security when you walk into the existing organization and you don't tell people that, or again, uh, you may tell them that, hey, we're gonna experiment, we're gonna try this thing, and if things go well, then you know we're just gonna transform your roles and everything's gonna be peachy, and you don't tell them what's gonna happen if you fail, like what it was gonna happen to their jobs. So that's a bit of a challenge <laughs> to say, to, to put it mildly, um, transforming, people and transforming the organization, transforming the processes. The other part of it is the upper management, the executive team, however you want to name it, they're used to seeing reports and uh, used to seeing data, used to see information about uh, what's going on in their teams in a certain way. 
product mindset and uh, product governance changes that. And therein lies the problem because executives, depending on how mature the product organization is within their realm of responsibilities, may not be ready for that change. And they were going to demand, um, they're going to demand or ask for similar or same format. And you can't deliver it because your processes have changed. You're not going to have project plan anymore. You're not going to have your plan for the next three months anymore. You will have a roadmap that will be three, six, and 12 months. You will have your sprint plans. You may even have a PI plan, but it's not going to be a project. You won't be able to say, oh, we're going to have, you know, down to a T for the next three to six months. It's all going to be very fluid. And once these big changes, like once you start experimentation, once you start A-B testing, once you start uh, prototyping and changing things and your test's going to fail. No, I'm sorry, not to test. Your hypothesis is going to fail. So you're trying, let's say you're trying um, voice transcripting. It's something I just uh, I just saw on Reddit that uh, Adobe Premiere Pro now has um, a transcription service. So if you upload the video, it can generate closed captioning for it, which is pretty cool. But I, I'm using other service for that. So I ran uh, them in parallel and to, just to compare. And it was really funny because they were all made mistakes. They made mistakes in the same places a lot of times, which tells me I need to speak better. And then they made mistakes in different places which really confuses me because to my ear there is no doubt about the words that i'm pronouncing at the time so there's your um let's say you're building a transcription service for your phone phone conversations you have to experiment with different engines and see which one will work better and then how do you decide, right? You say, for example, your company is already using AWS, uh, but you can request Azure transcription service, right? It's not going to be a big deal, but there's additional paperwork involved. And you experiment with one and experiment fails. Uh, say one of them um, produces significantly better translation in your domain, um, in your knowledge domain. So, so, so how do you report the failure of the hypotheses. Nobody likes failures. And I, I think I spoke about it in one of the previous episodes. Nobody likes failures. People are scared. The people, well, hey, we're not going to tell them we failed. Yes, you will. <laughs> but it's um, it's the psychological or, or uh, social thing where team is not really, doesn't really understand what the failure means at this point or within the product mindset, the failure is not that you failed to deliver something. Failure just means that this is not the way to do things, but we have other ways to do things. And we were never promised to be right the first time, every time. That's why we're running hypotheses. That's why we're running experimentations and all that. But it only works if you're doing this evolutionary. If you're doing this revolutionary, if you're just hooray, hooray in, into the thing. It only works if you already know um, that the team is good. You know that, you know, you're, you have a strong leadership. You have uh, good management that bought into this. They understand what you're doing. And that's why it makes for such a good story is because you, it's kind of like a, you know, you know, a hero saga, right? Not really... There's no fun in telling you about like, hey, today we met with a PMO and they sort of kind of understand what we're trying to do, but they requested we produce at least examples of every single deliverable, every single document that we're going to prepare and they will review it and tell us if they have enough to report to upper management. It's 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 extremely, extremely painful <laughs> to tell that story. And it's not really, I don't know, maybe, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should, I don't know. <laughs> we need to think about this. So we talked about the enterprise product governance and uh, organizational change management and uh, how the revolution versus evolution, uh, the revolution works, but only in one-tenth of a percent yeah, cases. In other cases, it's all daily grind and evolution as we know it. Let's move on to the second topic of today. It's prioritization in the enterprise. And again, I'm probably, I don't know, You, I, I did a little digging and short of actual recorded workshop 
which I'm thinking of doing, but I'm not sure how much of an interest that would be because you're going to end up with one hour of um, really weird. I don't know. People watch D&D, people playing D&D on YouTube. So maybe that that would be that would be interesting experiment. But what I'm trying to say, what I was trying to say was uh, unless I'll find the team to do a mock prioritization exercise for an hour, which I doubt I will. But we'll see. Um, I'm not going to talk specifically what happens in each individual framework, in each individual prioritization framework. I'm going to go through them, and then I'm going to talk about why these are the frameworks that I keep seeing being consistently used in the enterprise and why I keep seeing some of these frameworks not being used despite them being actually better. First and foremost, Take a wild guess. I'll pause for a second. Take a wild guess. What is the most used prioritization framework that I see in the enterprise? If you said Moscow, you're right. <laughs> um, the the reason why Moscow is the most used uh, framework that I've seen so far. Not saying everybody does that. I'm not saying I have any kind of statistical data or any big data, which actually reminds me we should probably do this on Reddit. The reason why I keep seeing Moscow is because we, I keep working with uh, teams and, uh, and, and organizations that are in the very beginning of their product mindset journey. They're just learning about it. They are starting on the path to become mature product organization. Or it's a brand new organization, brand new product, brand new development, and using something else doesn't really make much sense at this point. And I emphasize at this point, doesn't mean we're not mature product organization because I know we are. It's just there's no need to spend more cycles on doing this if we can just do the Moscow and that gives us a pretty clear understanding of what we're doing. So it's either early product or or very high level product features and capabilities. We're not really specifically looking into tiny little you know individual line items. So there are reasons why Moscow ended up being number one on my list because it's been used so much it's easy it's the reason another reason so so let me spin this uh, in a bit different way another reason why it's being used so much is because it's really easy to communicate what is going into a release what this means is if you are trying to get an upper management business pmo delivery on board you do the moscow and it, it it's really you don't have to teach them the framework they understand moscow because everybody understands uh must could must should could and will not or want because it's again it's easy it's transparent it's self-explanatory you cut down on times uh where you have to teach people what to, what, what you're doing and just go straight into the actual exercise and again, uh, your product organization may be mature, but your delivery may not, or the other way around, or there's a mix and match, or the executives are not uh, really bought into the product mindset. Doesn't mean they're not mature executives. Obviously, they are because they're you're you're in an enterprise company. Um, obviously, they're extremely smart people. Obviously, they know what they're doing. They just didn't haven't bought into this yet. And by utilizing the easiest, simplest uh, prioritization framework, uh, you try or the team or the the management is trying to get them on board, sort of demo the processes, and then once they're in, we can or the the management can go in and say, hey, uh, we are past the point where we can just take it easy. You have to go into extreme details, and there are better ways of doing this. So. Number one, Moscow. Number two, <laughs> if you said number two is value effort matrix, you're right. That's this next best thing after a slice bread. <laughs> and the reason is again, it's extremely, extremely obvious. 
it's so obvious. You, you, you know the drill, right? Uh, it's, it's very obvious. It's really easy to use when you're working on a new product, when you're building a VP, when you have not, not, when you don't have enough resources, when you're, again, if you're working with uh, resources of different maturity, I don't want to say who's like higher, who's lower. Doesn't it doesn't mean anything really, you know? Just just because your uh, your product manager is is extremely mature product manager doesn't mean they end up using Kana model or something else. It's just that you know nobody else knows what it is, and he may spend more time teaching them than actually going through the exercise. I'm guilty of that myself. Uh, one of the one of the products we were building recently, we ended up using Moscow value value effort matrix. We almost and almost went to the story mapping, but not quite, uh, because of various maturity of the resources working with us. Because we've invited UX, we've invited uh, delivery, we've invited uh, solution architects. They don't want to learn. They don't want to spend time learning in depth each of these techniques and figure out which one is better. They know something and it's really easy to explain and value effort makes sense. You t-shirt size the value, you t-shirt size the effort and you just throw things in the matrix and voila. Now, why would you use value effort instead of something else? Well, I mentioned it's easy. I mentioned it's uh, easy to explain and easy to use and easy uh, to uh, think and uh, to to model on when you're in the remote situation. It's really easy to do on a mirror board or whatever, just on something visual. Another uh, cool thing that it does is it allows you to really quickly identify quick wins and no-nos or not going to do it, right? <laughs> high, um, high effort, low value things. And it sparkles that important discussion about high effort, low value things, because a low value thing might be that the lighter that you really want in your product to attract customers. So it's, it, it starts those conversations, again, especially with a mixed maturity uh, resource pool, it sparks conversations about what is the value in this case. There might be a functional value, it might be a non-functional value, it might be a customer value, it might be an investor value. However, whichever method you're applying, whichever uh, mentality, whichever mindset you're, you're applying to this, that's when that conversation continues or or gets deeper obviously you have to agree on something to even conduct the exercise that goes without saying but if you found yourself putting a delighter into that quadrant high value low value high effort quadrant and you realize oh wait this is a delighter and you need to (laughs) it allows you to rethink your um your values what is the value how do you define the value so it pushes you inadvertently or or subconsciously or however you want to say it, it pushes you towards that maturity pushes you towards those more complex frameworks where you realize that hey simple frameworks are good because they're simple but they're not really painting the, the full picture so you need to look into something more sophisticated you need to look into something more interesting uh, more detailed something that gives you gives you as a product team more value in understanding what the real priorities are that's why I love value effort matrix. Not because it gives me all the answers I want. It gives me some answers and it pushes the team into looking into more sophisticated tools like different frameworks, more sophisticated frameworks, because this one isn't j- just just come up short from being good enough. And um, like I said, that's why I love it. And in my experience, from what I've seen, value effort is the second most popular thing I've seen. Again, not saying everyone does that, just saying that's what it is. Third on my list is story mapping. Within the last five to seven years, I would say, I've seen story mapping, again, my personal experience, not 
making any uh, statements about <laughs> all the other war, the whole other world. In my experience, story mapping is the uh, close third after value effort. The reason for that is, again, uh, once you start using Moscow and value effort, you quickly realize that they come up short in tracking uh, other important things like user experience, like the dependencies, like uh, realizing what is actually an MVP. And uh, you start looking for something that's just as good or, or as close to this as possible, again, in the environment when you work with different maturity resources. And that's especially... I've been building new products mostly uh, for the past several years. Uh, so story mapping uh, is something I uh, introduce to the teams without telling them it's a story mapping. I uh, sort of obscured it by saying, hey, we just you know do a mind mapping. And it ended up being story mapping. But we, we didn't use user stories. We used larger blocks of functionality. But story mapping it is. It is useful <laughs> when you're doing uh, new product development it is absolutely essential your need to define the MVP. When you have, uh, sh- when you're short in resources, you have uh, this uh, triangle of uh, resources, time, and um, scope, and you're short in resources. So you, the ability to, your, your wiggle room, right, on each of these three variables is different. So you can, let's say, for example, your uh, resources can only be, between, I don't know, 100 and 110 uh, people. Your team's total end up being between 100 and 110. That's not much. That's just one single team. But in terms of your re- your your scope, you can, you're flexible. You can throw out the whole, whole capabilities if that helps. So story mapping helps you kind of line up what's your MVP, line up things that where you need to focus on. Uh, and helps you realize how you how you look at the user experience. Um, it's very visual. It helps kind of put things in perspective. But as much as I would love to say it tracks dependencies well, well, it doesn't. <laughs> it does some, but not a lot. Now I'm going to transition to the second part of this conversation where I'm going to talk about the models that I tried very hard to implement. I had a lot of support from the product team to implement these models. And we ended up not using them for various reasons. One of the reasons, one of the main reasons, I keep harping on it and I'm gonna say it again, it's your value effort ratio in the mixed maturity team. What do I mean by that? When you have, and um, most of these prioritization in my, in our, in, in, in the product mindset um, methodology that I implement and the company I work for implements, it's the combined effort of a product, user experience, engineering and delivery. So not just product management. There are other parties involved. Not all of them know all these models. Not all of them have time or desire to learn them to an extent that you can successfully implement that. Not everybody has time to even use it because some of these frameworks actually require a lot of time to process and um, all the questionnaires, all the steps that you need to make maybe a hard sell for some of these uh, mixed maturity people you're working with, mixed maturity team members. What are the frameworks, right? Kana model. You need to make better decisions for product features, capabilities. Uh, You want to prioritize features specifically based on the customer's perception of the value. This is great when you're working with a customer-facing uh, product, not so much if your product are a bunch of APIs or if it's an internal product or if it's a product that doesn't have that strong of a customer base. And again, this is the enterprise, so most of these products are going to be internal. That's when um, there might be an issue 
with using Kana model. It's perfect. We actually um, have seen frameworks that even help you eliminate um, highest paid person opinion, HIPAA, not HIPAA, HIPAA, which is really cool. And we were specifically looking for the model like that to be able to alleviate some of the louder voices in the room. We ended up not using it because the complexity became it undoing. The complexity of the counter model, believe it or not, made it not transparent enough. And again, we're talking about people learning how the model works so they can trust it. And because it wasn't transparent enough and wasn't obvious and it required that there was actually a learning curve involved, we ended up not using it not because it didn't work, not because it was a bad model, not because of a lack of time, because people didn't think that they could trust it on the spot and then, oh, hey, if we can't trust it on the spot, we need to learn how to do it. Nobody's going to do it. Nobody's going to spend time on it. And executives are just not going to buy it. You're going to give them the matrix with the, like, with the answers or with the prioritized features. They're going to look at it and say, oh, so how did you arrive at it? No, this, is not, this number is wrong. And, you know, that's the danger of um, giving people Excel files. They just tell you this number is wrong. Your, your formula is not, is not working. <laughs> and we ended up not using the kind of model. Again, um, the problem was not like not a direct mistrust in the model, but the, the steep learning curve, the complexity of the model, and the time required to learn it didn't align with the expectations that people would just look at it immediately believe it and everything would be peachy. Another um, uh, really good model that I keep seeing people refer to, I believe it's being used widely, just not where I am. <laughs> just not not with the products that I work with. Uh, the model is Rice, uh, reaching my confidence over the effort. It gives you an objective scoring uh, on what has been proved over developing one from scratch. I'm not teaching you what these models are, right? I'm just giving you ref quick reference so you can remember what the hell I'm talking about. It the good part of it, this model is it quantifies impact per time, uh, or it really gives you a lot of numbers to work with, which is good, right? We want to make data-driven decisions. This is what it does. It gives you data, but guess what? you have to predefine scoring factors, which is really hard in the mixed maturity environment. When you have that evolutionary path going up, people are not there yet. Some are, some aren't, or they don't want to take time to figure it out. And again, there's there's a lot of pre prep work, the pre-work that needs to happen. So you have all the right numbers to plug into the framework. And that's not always possible. Also, if you're working on a brand new product or a new development or a new team, you may not even have those numbers or those numbers may not be true and constantly adjusting them kind of messes things up a bit. And like I said, I know there's a lot of people out there who use Rice model. I just have, haven't happened to be one. I'm not, I am not one of them for whatever reason for the past several years, never had a chance. Um, moving on, buy a feature. To be quite honest, we actually did use it in one of the companies I worked for. The trick to it is having established processes, having mature organization, having your stakeholders, business stakeholders, uh, technology, everybody else bought into your product, bought into this model and basically playing along. If they're playing along, if they wanted to do this, then you shouldn't have any uh, problem the <laughs> problem uh, with participation unless you have a problem with the schedule because it requires a lot of people a lot of high profile people being in the same room at the same time it is a huge challenge believe me when i tell you putting three executives in one room is almost as hard as building a brand new product from scratch nobody has time Unless, again, unless they bought into it, unless they really want to participate, unless they think it's fun, this case, they'll make time. But, you know. Last on my list, cost of delay. 
My problem with this framework, and again, I'm not saying it's bad. I actually think it's amazing in the way that it's put real dollars next to the feature. I have my own way of tracing dollars to features. I don't want to talk about it right now it's because it's not in scope of our conversation. The cost of a delay is when you're putting in a mutually agreed upon dollar amount against your backlog items, against your features or capabilities or whatever. And then you look at, you know, what would the delay cost us if we didn't develop this feature? And then you just look at it from from monitor perspective. I think it's absolutely amazing. Probably one of the best frameworks I can think of right now because it actually puts the dollars to your donuts. And I mean, companies exist to make profit, right? Make money. If you're actually capable of tracing the dollars to your backlog items, you have a pretty, I'd say pretty powerful tool to tell your executives why things need to happen. So to me, the cost of delay framework is is pretty powerful tool. And I think the reason I've never seen this framework being used in my life is because it's really hard to agree on the dollar value for each individual item, especially those items that are brand new and haven't been built. We tried using it at some point in one of my previous engagements. We quickly gave up because we no one in the company, not even the people who've been in the industry for 20, 30 years, could reasonably agree on what those dollar amounts should be. And that it was the biggest challenge in looking at it, looking at the cost of delay framework. It's an amazing framework. I think it's uh, really puts, it really puts your backlog or your product into a proper perspective building product either to save money or to make more money or to delight your customers that will bring you money or maybe it's not money money maybe it's some other um some other monetization tactics whatever it is Uh, maybe it's acquisition maybe it's engagement target whatever it is but it puts that real value real dollar signs to it as long as you can agree what those signs are per feature and I'm yet to see. Uh, I'm yet to see an organization where that is doable. Not saying easy. I'm not saying anything. Just I want to see where it's doable. And I'm sure the organization like that with mature products or with mature teams that can actually do that. Otherwise, this framework wouldn't have existed. But I personally, from my personal opinion, I'm yet to see it. I'm yet to experience it. I'm yet to implement it and reap the fruits of it. So here we are, uh, was what, seven seven frameworks that we've discussed. I shared why I see some of them being overused, even in places that we shouldn't, and why some of them are underused, even though they should be used more, uh, like Kana or story mapping. I love Kana because it allows you to alleviate some of the issues with uh, very strong personalities. That's just my personal pet peeve. And, um, let me give a shout out to a person I worked with who gave me a very specific Excel that implements Kana model. Erica, if you're listening to this, hi, thank you so much. Uh, I, I keep remembering that that was a good thing. Uh, so these are cool. Yes, they are. Why they're not being used? Because in the enterprise and that evolution versus revolution world, it's really hard to convince people to use sophisticated methods early on. First, and when I'm saying early on, I mean 12 to 24 months after the beginning of transformation. This is not two weeks, four weeks, two months, three months. We're talking about three to five year journey of digital transformation. So for the first couple of years, the organization as the whole is not mature enough to use sophisticated prioritization frameworks on the very rare occasions. And again, I've seen them. I've been a part of that. So I know they happen, but that's what makes them unique is when you can do the revolution. But in most cases, 
you can't. In a lot of cases, you're going to meet a very strong opposition from PMO, from upper management, from whomever, whomever you didn't look at the right way in the organization, they will not want to use it because they still have businesses usually, still have things to work on in the old ways. Somebody has to keep the lights on. Always remember that. That's why revolution is a cool story. It happens, but it's once once a lifetime opportunity. I'm glad I had it. I don't expect to see it again. <laughs> it's back to the grind. The other thing, and, and, and this is what we all sort of, when we talk about fang companies when we talk about companies as the whole we kind of missed that and i almost missed mentioning it i'm lucky i have my notes here i wanted to say one more thing about this evolution versus revolution and why we're not using these frameworks kind of tie it all up together companies are not monolithic each company especially when you start working at large companies not necessarily consulting companies but any company, whatever, they are extremely, extremely, extremely non-homogeneous. In other words, you will have a team, a team A, which is about 20, 30 people. They've implemented perfect agile, whichever they picked up, they implemented it to the T. It's perfect. It's flawless. Everybody knows what they're doing. It's amazing. You can have a team of 30 people sitting on the same floor pre-COVID days on the same floor that has no idea what the user story looks like. They have absolutely no idea that they even need an acceptance criteria in the user story. You literally say, so what's your acceptance criteria for this story? And they look at you like, what? I lived through that. So (laughs) I'm not imagining things. I've heard that. I'm pretty sure it was not a prank. So uh, companies are very different inside. There are teams that are very mature. They are able to execute. They know what they're doing. There are teams that are so set in the old ways that it's really hard to move. You're going to see people joining your meetings when you're doing your educational runs or your um, presentation runs to sabotage, to, to jeopardize your conversation. They will start asking meaningless questions, trying to disrupt the conversation, move it to another direction to prevent you from succeeding in doing your job. Not because they don't like you. They don't care. They want to preserve the status quo. They want to preserve the ways of working they have today because they're convenient, they're comfortable, everybody knows what they're doing. If it works, don't fix it. Well, it was... <laughs> It was a good thing to say in 2019 and up to March 13, 2020. But after that, we sort of kind of, I think we sort of kind of lost lost that chip. We lost the ability to say that. If it's not broken, need to fix it. We still need to fix it. So to wrap things up, thank you so much for listening or watching the youtube video like i said i'm trying to learn how to do better editing so it's not just my face but also some other uh things on the screen hopefully i'll i'll get better at it with time to summarize we've talked about enterprise product governance and product management evolution versus revolution why you can only do revolutionary approach in one tenth of a percent of the time every time all the other cases 99.9 percent of all the other cases you're going to end up doing evolution slow painful but steady and slow and steady wins the day and the second part of this uh, of today's episode was about prioritization why most of the cases that i've seen most of the frameworks that i've seen being used in the product organizations across the enterprise are simplest your moscow your value effort your story mapping why things like kana rice by feature or cost of delay are not being used I believe it's because of the mixed maturity. I believe it's because of lack of time and lack of, frankly, lack of desire to learn new things. And, and at the same time, because people are not really open, not always open to the change, uh, hopefully um, there's some good in uh, recent events and hopefully we'll be able to <laughs> do a better job with the digital transformation and um changing things uh, to the better and changing things to be more efficient. With that said, thank you very much for listening. Take care. You've been listening to The Real World Product Management, and I've been your host, Vlad Grubman. Until the next time...